To his imperial majesty, the emperor of Morocco, being desirous of establishing and cultivating peace and harmony between our nation and his imperial majesty, the emperor of Morocco. I have appointed David Humphreys, one of our distinguished citizens, a commissioner plenipotentiary, giving him full power to negotiate and conclude a treaty of amnesty and commerce with you. And I pray you to give full credit to whatever shall be delivered to you on the part of the United States by him, and particularly when he shall assure you of our sincere desire to be in peace and friendship with you and your people. I pray God to give you health and happiness. In late March 1795, Washington sent a circular message not just to the Emperor of Morocco, but also to the Bay of Tunis, the Dey and Governors of Algiers, and the Bashaw, Lords, and Governors of Tripoli, informing them of the mission of David Humphreys to seek a treaty with each of them, a group collectively known as the Barbary Powers. Humphreys was being sent on a mission that had frustrated the likes of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who had worked on the very same issue 10 years prior while serving in diplomatic postings in Europe. Whether Humphreys could succeed where these illustrious figures had not would be a test not just of his individual diplomatic skills, but also of the prestige and authority of the United States and the Washington administration. Welcome, dear listener, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we dive into this episode, I'd like to take a moment to thank Lynn Perkins for reading our intro quote for this episode. Lynn is the host of the History of the Ottoman Empire podcast, where he is in the process of guiding his listeners through the 600-plus years of Ottoman history from Osman's first victories to the dissolution of the empire in the aftermath of World War I. It's one of the podcasts that I listen to on a regular basis, and I hope it'll become a favorite of yours as well. Check out Len's podcast at the History of the Ottoman Empire, all one word, dot com. It's not often that we think about the Ottoman Empire in terms of early American history, but it actually does play a role in the Barbary States that was one of the United States' first diplomatic challenges. To explain, we must take a moment to look at the state of affairs in the Mediterranean Sea in the late 18th century. What are known as the Barbary states were located along the north coast of Africa, stretching from modern-day Morocco to modern-day Libya. And modern-day is 2018 as of this recording, by the way. The Barbary states had been caught in the middle of a power struggle between the Ottoman Empire and European powers in the 16th century, with the Ottomans ultimately losing control over the western Mediterranean, though Tunis, Algiers, and Tripoli remained quote-unquote regencies of the Ottoman Empire. Because of Spain's domination of that portion of the Mediterranean, they achieved an autonomous status and turned to piracy when they were, quote, locked out of European markets and operated without major naval support from Constantinople. Historian Frank Lambert points to the first half of the 17th century as, quote, the apogee of Barbary power, with Algiers in particular benefiting from the system and growing, quote, into one of the largest cities in the Mediterranean with a population of around 100,000 bigger than Genoa, Marseille, or Barcelona. Though denied access to European ports, the piracy allowed them to take advantage of European conflicts as, quote, one belligerent was always all too willing for the Barbary pirates to raid its enemy's shipping. However, this golden age of Mediterranean piracy was not to last, as in the latter half of the 17th century, the Dutch and English sent naval forces into the area to crack down on piracy. Thus, quote, by the end of the century, the Algerian naval force had been reduced by 75%, 
By the time they raided American shipping in the late 18th century, the Barbary powers had been diminished to petty states, none of them able to launch more than a dozen Corsairs. It was still enough to get the attention of the government of the new United States, however. First the government under the Articles of Confederation, then the government under the Constitution. With the Declaration of Independence, American merchants lost the protection of the British Navy in the Mediterranean, and, quote, Algiers declared war on American shipping at the urging of the British. Though attempts were made by Adams and Jefferson to do something to find a diplomatic solution, the fact of the matter was that both they and the American government had bigger fish to fry. They had met with success with Morocco, with the Moroccan emperor Sidi Muhammad becoming, quote, the first head of state to recognize American independence and the first to offer a treaty of peace and commerce. But this olive branch was flitted away. The United States and its diplomats failed to act on the emperor's overtures. So after six years of waiting, the emperor ordered a U.S. merchant ship captured and sent a demand, quote, that Congress negotiate a treaty with him. A treaty with Morocco was finally ratified in July 1787, but the problem remained of the other Barbary states. Whereas the Moroccan treaty had been procured for around $20,000, the day of Algiers, Mohammed V demanded $1 million, or, as noted by Lambert, around $18 million in 2005 currency. Like the Moroccan emperor, the day had taken American sailors captive in July 1785. Unlike the emperor, though, the Algerine Day had put these captives into slavery, and there was little that the negotiators sent to Algiers could do about the situation, as they had little authority with which to act, and the Confederation government at home was in the process of falling apart. Thus, the negotiations would stall during the transition into the new U.S. government under the Constitution. When the circular letter and the new initiative were launched in 1795, what had changed? Well, the new constitution granted diplomatic agents more authority with which to negotiate. Instead of having to seek the approval of a legislative body following their confirmation, they were given instructions by the State Department, acting under the approval of the chief executive, which would guide them on what they could and couldn't do. As we have seen in recent episodes with the diplomatic missions of John Jay and James Monroe, those instructions could carry a wide latitude. But instead of reporting back to an entire body of legislators, the nation's diplomatic ministers, except in the case of negotiated treaties, only had to report back to the president and the secretary of state. As there was still a time lag in communication between the government in Philadelphia and its diplomatic agents, which had proven to be a sticking point in negotiation attempts under the Confederation government, this new governance structure made it a bit easier for diplomats to go out on a limb and act independently with the hope that they would be able to convince their superiors of the justification for their actions. All the problems were far from solved, to be sure, but it was a large step in the right direction. Post-1789, however, the problem in dealing with the Barbary pirates was in actually getting the attention of the new government to focus on the issue. Now, it should be said, considering that we've gone through 27 episodes of the Washington presidency, there was obviously a great deal that the new government had on its plate. However, though 21 American sailors had been held by the Algerines since 1785, it took until February 1792 before John Paul Jones was appointed to negotiate with the day on the sailors' behalf. Jones, the Revolutionary War hero, had been urging action to secure the release of the sailors for years and might have been a strong advocate for their release, 
if he had not died in Paris on June 18th before he was able to take up the appointment. The task was then given to Thomas Barclay, who had been the chief negotiator behind the treaty with Morocco. However, he too died before he was able to take up the task. Meanwhile, the day of Algiers also died and was succeeded by Ali Hassan, who was, quote, eager to prove himself, which in Algiers meant capturing prizes and exacting tribute. Without the protection of a treaty or navy, American shipping was a potential source of new prizes for Hassan's pirates. By late November 1793, 11 American vessels had been captured by Algerine pirates. Clearly, something had to be done. Congress decided to approve both, quote, a sum of money to buy a cessation of hostilities from the Regency of Algiers, and to, as we discussed in episode 1.21, fund the construction of the first six frigates of the U.S. Navy. In that episode, we discussed how the impetus for the new Navy related to British attacks on American shipping in the Caribbean, but news of the Barbary pirates attacking merchant ships in the Mediterranean at around the same time provided ever more justification for the move. The congressional action gave the Washington administration the tools it needed to launch a new diplomatic initiative, but the question became who should be tasked with the project. Astute listeners to the podcast may recognize the name David Humphreys, as he was mentioned in episode 1.12. Humphreys, a native of Connecticut, had served as an aide-de-camp to Washington during the Revolutionary War. Then, after a stint in Paris assisting Jefferson, Humphreys had continued to serve Washington in a private capacity upon Washington's retirement and return to Mount Vernon, with Humphreys intending to write a biography of the retired general in exchange for helping Washington to organize his papers and later in drafting documents. Humphreys would then accompany Washington to New York City and attend his inauguration in 1789. He would act as one of the president's secretaries until he was appointed and confirmed as U.S. Minister to Portugal in 1791. Due to the nature of his proximity to the scene, it would be from Humphreys that the government would receive its intelligence about the seizure of U.S. vessels in the Mediterranean. Likewise, due to his being nearby as well as Washington's trust in him and the fact that Portugal in early 1794 had decided both to develop a closer relationship with the U.S. while declaring war against Algerine Corsairs, Humphreys was seen as the perfect candidate to take the lead in negotiating with the Barbary states. The negotiations would not prove easy, however. In October 1794, Algerine de Hassan would increase the, quote, demand for peace and ransom to more than $2 million. While the day had proven to have a tendency to open with a high bid and ultimately accept far less than the first offer in negotiations with other foreign powers, it still did cause a bit of a stir in American official circles. Ultimately, an agreement would be reached on September 5, 1795, with the U.S. agreeing to pay $600,000, with $60,000 due at the time of signing, in addition to, quote, an annual tribute either in gold or in military goods. This treaty, like the Jay Treaty, would prove to be contentious when it arrived in Philadelphia, though for different reasons. But for now, let's jump to another set of negotiations happening in another Mediterranean nation. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio vs. the World makes history fun again.
As mentioned in episode 1.26, Thomas Pinckney, who had been serving as U.S. Minister to Great Britain, was charged in November 1794 with the task of undertaking a special diplomatic mission to Spain in an attempt to resolve long-standing disputes between that nation and the United States. Though I've not been able to find an account of Pinckney's journey to Madrid, John Jay had made the journey over 15 years prior to assume the post of U.S. Minister to Spain and described the overland route from the Port of Cadiz to Madrid as being a challenging one, where it was difficult to find, quote, adequate food besides that which Jay and his party brought along with them, and with inns that offered rooms with, quote, several loads of dirt, in which were contained not less than two or three thousand fleas, lice, bugs, etc., Nothing that I've read suggests that conditions were much improved by the time of Pinckney's mission, but Madrid itself was a different story. As Jay biographer Walter Starr described the city during Jay's residence there, quote, Madrid was at this time a city of about 150,000 people, more than three times larger than Philadelphia. The rich of Madrid were far richer than the richest Americans, and the poor, who were of course much more numerous, far poor. King Charles III was remaking Madrid, creating parks, boulevards, and public buildings as part of his campaign to make Spain a modern nation. When Pinckney arrived in Madrid, he found himself dealing with a favorite of the Spanish court and a rumored lover of Spanish Queen Maria Luisa, Manuel de Godoy y Alvarez de Faria, who had been granted the title of Prince of the Peace, or Prince de la Pax in Espanol, and was at that time serving as Prime Minister of the nation. Pinckney himself would assert that, quote, on the whole, the prince dealt fairly with me. The two sticking points in the negotiations, however, were navigation rights on the Mississippi River for American citizens and the privilege of utilizing the Port of New Orleans as a deposit point for American produce. Pinckney noted that, quote, the only words of warmth which have ever passed between the Prince de la Pax and myself were on this subject. At one point, Pinckney threatened to end negotiations and asked for his passports, but was invited back to the table and the Treaty of San Lorenzo, more commonly known as Pinckney's Treaty, would be signed on October 27, 1795. This treaty, in addition to settling the southern border of the United States where it bordered Spanish Florida, also guaranteed American navigation of the Mississippi River and access to the Port of New Orleans. This was a major diplomatic triumph for the nation. Jay's treaty had avoided war, but the U.S. had gained little from it. Pinckney's treaty, however, would change the landscape of the then-American West. It was a desperately needed victory for an administration that was finding few to be had in late 1795. As discussed last episode, as Pinckney was concluding negotiations in Madrid, Washington was still on a desperate search for new cabinet members. We did not discuss Washington's search for an attorney general in the last episode, so let's get caught up on that one. On August 26th, Washington wrote to a character that has been increasingly popping up in the podcast, John Marshall, and offered him the position. Marshall, as was becoming a trend, would write to Washington on the 31st declining the position, though of course he claimed that it was because he was too immersed in a legal case and that, quote, I respect too highly the offices of the present government of the United States to permit it to be suspected that I have declined one of them. Yeah, yeah, that didn't get the position filled. Washington then wrote to Edward Carrington, a fellow Continental Army veteran and politician from Virginia, on September 28, asking if he thought that a Colonel Ennis would accept an appointment as Attorney General. James Ennis was a fellow Virginian who had served in the Virginia Assembly in the 1780s and then as the State Attorney General in 1786. Certainly not an extensive resume to bring to the table, but at this point we're pretty far down on the list of potential nominees. 
We have no record of Carrington's response, but as we'll talk about in a few, there's a reason why Washington went back to the drawing board rather than considering Ennis any further. Maybe he could take another approach. What if Timothy Pickering could be moved into another position and someone else take over at the War Department? Pickering was already acting Secretary of State, so he wouldn't be going into the position at square one. But who might be a good candidate for the War Department? Oh wait, Washington just wrote to a guy who served in the Continental Army, as well as the Continental Congress and as a U.S. Marshal. Thus, Washington wrote back to Carrington on October 9th, asking him if he would take over at the War Department. Surprise, surprise, Carrington wrote on the 13th, declining the appointment. This really was approaching what folks in the late 20th century and early 21st century would describe as a sitcom-esque comedy of errors. Will no one serve in Washington's cabinet? Another thought came to mind on October 16th, and Washington wrote to Patrick Henry. That's right, that Patrick Henry, the give me liberty or give me death Patrick Henry, asking him if he would serve as Secretary of State. Though Henry was still well known in the nation and had served two stints as governor of Virginia, he had retired from public life in 1791 and had already declined an appointment to the U.S. Senate the year prior. Thus, surprise, surprise, Henry also declined the appointment to the State Department. What remained of his cabinet was of little help to Washington. Pickering had suggested Samuel Dexter to fill the post of Attorney General. Dexter was a lawyer from Massachusetts and a former member of the U.S. House of Representatives. But Washington, knowing that Dexter had been recently defeated for re-election to the House, felt him to be a poor candidate to join the administration. As he had in the matter of the Jay Treaty, Washington turned to a trusted advisor who was now out of public service. On October 29th, he wrote to Hamilton about his dilemma in filling cabinet positions. After throwing his hands up at the situation, he started brainstorming on paper. Quote, would Mr. King accept the State Department? Senator Rufus King of New York was a prominent figure in the government of the time. So, quote, if Mr. King would accept, I would look no further. He had been burned on that assumption before, though. So he asked about, quote, the qualifications of Mr. Potts, the senator. Richard Potts hailed from Maryland and had an extensive political background, rising from the Maryland House of Delegates to the Continental Congress, then serving as U.S. District Attorney in Maryland and Chief Judge in the Fifth Circuit Court of Maryland, before finally being elected to the U.S. Senate. Washington assured Hamilton that, quote, I will decide on nothing until I hear from you, pressing as the case is. After that, he went through possibilities for Attorney General. He brought up the possibility of Hamilton's associate, Representative William Lawden Smith of South Carolina. Though Washington felt that Smith, quote, had no objection to filling a respectable office under the general government, what his views might lead to, or his abilities particularly fit him for, I am an incompetent judge. And besides, on the ground of popularity, his pretensions would, I fear, be small. Samuel Chase, who was serving as the Chief Justice of Maryland, certainly had a more applicable background for the position, and, though he had been opposed to ratification of the Constitution, had since, quote, been a steady friend to the general government. The fly in the ointment for Chase, though, was that, quote, he is violently opposed in his own state by a party, and is besides, or to speak more correctly, has been accused of some impurity in his conduct. After the recent controversies with Randolph and the Calm Observer essays, it was probably best for Washington to avoid taking on a new cabinet member with such baggage. He then returns to the idea of Ennis, and Washington reveals why a letter was never sent to him as, quote, his, Ennis's, extreme indolence renders his abilities, great as they are said to be, of little use. Well, that settles that. 
but there's still far more question marks than solid contenders in this brainstorming session. Hamilton would reply on November 5th with his two cents, if, of course, they were even worth that much. Hamilton, in his letter, throws his hands up and writes, quote, I wish, sir, I could present to you any useful ideas as a substitute, but the embarrassment is extreme as the Secretary of State. An attorney general, I believe, may easily be fixed upon by a satisfactory choice. Hamilton suggests either Dexter or Christopher Gore, who was then serving as U.S. District Attorney for Massachusetts, as good candidates for that post. For the State Department, though, Hamilton shoots down numerous possibilities. With King, he tells Washington that the senator wouldn't accept the post, but that he and King had talked about the other possibilities for the office. With Smith, though admitting that, quote, he has more real talent than the last incumbent of the office, there are strong objections to his appointment. Smith had what Hamilton described as, quote, an uncomfortable temper and was known for being, quote, tinctured with prejudices towards the British. Potts, too, was out as, though he was, quote, a man of good sense, he was also, in Hamilton and King's opinions, quote, of a cast of character ill-suited to such an appointment and is not extensive either as to talents or information. Ennis, too, was out, with Hamilton writing that he was, quote, too absolutely lazy for Secretary of State. He then puts forward a litany of other names. U.S. District Court Judge Nathaniel Pendleton, Henry de Saussure, former Virginia Governor Henry Lee, Charles Lee, and Dr. James McHenry. We only need concern ourselves with a couple of these names, for it was in these out-of-left-field suggestions that Washington ultimately found the solutions to his personnel problems. To start with, Charles Lee. Before you ask, yes, Charles Lee was one of those Lees, the Lees of Virginia. Charles was a lawyer who had served in the Continental Congress. He had most recently served as the Collector of Customs in Alexandria, Virginia in the early days of the Washington administration, followed by a stint in the Virginia General Assembly. Hamilton's endorsement of him was not an overwhelming one. Quote, I only know enough of him to thank him worth considering. For some reason, though, Washington ultimately decided to offer the position of Attorney General to him, and on November 30th, Lee agreed to the appointment. The Senate confirmed the appointment, and on December 10th, Charles Lee became the third Attorney General of the United States. One down, one to go. Which brings us to James McHenry. Historian Leonard White describes McHenry as, quote, a warm-hearted Irishman who arrived in Philadelphia from County Antrim in 1771 at the age of 18 and set out to make his fortune. His temperament, however, was not that of a successful businessman. So he turned to medicine, studied in Philadelphia under Benjamin Rush, and served during the Revolution as an army surgeon and as secretary to Washington. Washington himself had written of the young man as a, quote, man of letters and abilities, of great integrity, sobriety, and prudence. In a word, a man of strict honor, of an amiable temper, very obliging, and of polished manners. However, Hamilton's assessment of him in November 1795 was not much of an endorsement. Quote, McHenry, you know, would give no strength to the administration, but he would not disgrace the office. His views are good. Perhaps his health, etc., would prevent his accepting. I guess that's a bit better than what Charles Lee got, but not by much. Though McHenry had an extensive career in Maryland state politics, having served in the Confederation Congress and the Constitutional Convention representing the state, then in both houses of the state legislature, his reputation did not extend far beyond the state borders. And as noted in Hamilton's letter, his health was a concern, as, according to his biographer Karen Robbins, McHenry suffered from, quote, autumnal fevers, 
probably malaria. Though he would not act on it immediately, it does seem that Washington filed away for later the prospect of James McHenry. For now, though, he had other concerns. Congress was due to come back in session in December, and, along with delivering his annual address, Washington also had to submit his nomination of John Rutledge as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to the Senate for confirmation. As you may recall from episode 1.27, Jay's replacement on the court had been installed on a recess appointment. Rutledge, after getting word from Washington of his appointment, had hightailed it up to Philadelphia and was able to participate in two cases of the Supreme Court's August term, one of which Rutledge delivered an opinion in which he concurred in the court's overall decision in the case. He was already proving that he could fill the role, so his nomination should be a shoe-in, especially with Federalists in control of the Senate, right? Not so fast, dear listener. There was one minor problem that ultimately grew into a major problem. In between his appointment and his sitting in the August session, Rutledge had presided over a meeting on July 16th in Charleston, South Carolina, in protest of the Jay Treaty. Federalists, having gone out on a limb to ratify the treaty in the first place, were outraged that the new Chief Justice was now taking a stand against it. To be fair to Rutledge, The concept of a nonpartisan judiciary, as we think of it in the modern era, 2018 as of this recording, was not the norm of the time. As noted by historian Willis Wichard in his biography of Supreme Court Justice James Iredale, quote, During the Washington and Adams administrations, Federalist federal judges, including Supreme Court justices on circuit, were viewed as representatives or extensions of the national administration. Their charges in legal cases that they adjudicated, quote, were the foremost feature of the Supreme Court's manifest involvement in partisan politics during this period. As we've seen, with the Chief Justice being sent as a special envoy representing the Washington administration abroad, the lines between the branches of government and between the judiciary and partisanship simply weren't established at this time. The problem was not the new Chief Justice taking a partisan stand, but rather what stand he took on the issue. Had Rutledge presided over a meeting in support of the Jay Treaty, we might be talking about the lengthy tenure of the Rutledge Court. As it stands, though, in the interim between July and the Senate's reconvening in December, the agitation against Rutledge continued to build, with rumors circulating that he was mentally unbalanced. Rutledge had fallen ill while traveling to sessions of the Circuit Court, but I cannot speak to the validity of the rumors about his mental state. They were enough, though, to sway the Senate, and by a vote of 14 to 10, Rutledge's nomination was rejected. To point out just how serious this vote was, Rutledge remains to this date, again, 2018 for future listeners, the only Supreme Court recess appointment that has been rejected by the Senate. Sadly, as a sign that there may have been more truth to the rumors than one would like to believe, Rutledge, who had returned to Charleston in the latter part of the year, and thus learned of the Senate's rejection from afar, attempted to drown himself in Charleston Bay. He was, quote, saved by two passing slaves, but the suicide attempt would mark the end of his public career, and he would remain in seclusion for the remainder of his life. So yeah, in the final six months of 1795, the summary of events stands as follows. Washington had dealt with learning that his Secretary of State had been at the very least inadvisably close and frank with the French minister to the U.S., but possibly a full-blown traitor and, on a personal level, had resulted in his ending a long-standing relationship with a fellow Virginian. 
Meanwhile, he had the son of one of his closest friends and associates during the war show up, and because of politics, he was unable to welcome him with open arms. He had been ridiculed in the press for signing the Jay Treaty and accused of financial impropriety with public funds. He had begged and pleaded with folks up and down the East Coast to join his cabinet to little avail. Now, his pick as Chief Justice had been rejected, and he had yet another office to fill. What could possibly make this absolutely awful year even worse for the president? Well, on December 20th, Edmund Randolph's vindication was published. After months of collecting evidence, including the former French minister's promised documentation of events, Randolph published a lengthy account of what he had done to gather information after the accusations against him were made in August, including extracts of dispatches 3 and 6 for all to see. Then, using Washington's letter to him in July as evidence of the president's changing opinion on the Jay Treaty, built up his theory that the former British minister, George Hammond, had used these dispatches and orchestrated the charges to get Washington to doubt Randolph and, in turn, Randolph's counsel of caution on the treaty. Representative William Branch Giles of Virginia, who had seen part of a draft of the vindication in early December, felt that it would absolve Randolph of the corruption charges, but that it would also paint him as, quote, the most indiscreet of ministers. Vice President Adams, meanwhile, pronounced the vindication to be, quote, a very weak thing, and, quote, a piece of revenge against the president. Secretary of the Treasury Walcott and Alexander Hamilton both felt that, rather than vindicating him, the publication proved Randolph's guilt. John Quincy Adams, in London on diplomatic service, had been a defender of Randolph until he read the vindication, after which he, quote, expressed his amazement at the indiscretions of the author. Representative James Madison, meanwhile, wrote to Jefferson that, quote, as it relates to the president, nothing seems to be said, and as it relates to parties in general, very little. Randolph's months of effort had done little to rebuild his shattered reputation, and he returned with his family to Richmond, Virginia in December to resume his legal practice with little chance of ever being in public service again after such a lengthy career that had taken him so close to the pinnacle of the government structure. One has to wonder what the president was feeling as 1795 turned into 1796. One imagines that he might have felt a bit of relief at having the difficult year behind him, but one can also imagine a sense of dread for the coming year. 1796 was an election year, and Washington would have to decide once and for all if he would opt for his long-awaited retirement or if Hamilton and other Federalists would be able to convince him to stick around for four more years. With factional politics ramping up, it was quite likely that attacks from Bosch and other Democratic Republicans would increase as well. With the president not getting any younger, there was much for him to consider. And as had been the case in every previous year, it was likely that there would be a few more surprises in store for which the administration would have to deal. We'll get to one of those surprises and more in our next episode, which I'd like to call Runaway. Until then, I'd like to give special thanks again to Lynn Perkins for providing the intro quote for this episode. Also, as always, thanks to our audio editor, Andrew Fonkook. As we draw near the end of the Washington presidency, I'm reminded with each episode of how I could not do what I do without his contributions to the process. If you, like me, can use Andrew's assistance with your podcast or next audio project, drop him a line at andrew at fonkook, that's P-F-A-N-N, 
K-U-C-H-E.com. As for me, should you have any questions, comments, or obscure early Republic figures that you'd like to suggest that the president look at to fill his cabinet, I hear that Theophilus Bradbury and Hezekiah Hosmer are just sitting around twiddling their thumbs, Mr. President. Drop me an email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. I can also be reached on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. You can see all the sources used for this episode, along with the many ways that you can subscribe to the podcast at the website at presidencies.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Thank you so much for listening and take care, dear friends. Until next time. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.